Welcome, everyone. This is Seeking Sustainability Live. I'm JJ Walsh here in Hiroshima, Japan. And today I have the pleasure of talking with Mega Wadha in Berlin, Germany. But we are talking about your wonderful book, your wonderful research on Indian migrants in Tokyo. Thank you so much for joining, Mega. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure. Finally, we、It's, made it. <laughs> yeah, so you're on the other side of the world now, and now you have the opportunity to study the Indian population in Germany as well. How interesting of a contrast. Yeah, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it, even though my main research still focuses on the Indian migrants in Tokyo, and I'm waiting to enter Japan, and I hope that happens soon. But、uh, yeah, but in the meantime, I, I'm spending time interviewing people in Germany as well and to understand the differences between the two. So it's、Wonderful. pretty interesting yeah, that how、yeah. a host plays a role、uh, in a migrant's life majorly. Yeah, now you, I've listened to a wonderful interview that you did with Japan by River Cruise, Bobby and Ali. And you also did an interview with the Japan Times and another interview I watched with the Indian Japan Society. Yeah. And all talking about the book and all the different insights about the Indian community in Japan, which we'll be talking about today. How did you start thinking, I want to write a book, I want to do research on this? When, when did that start for you? So, the writing of book was there in my mind the very day I decided that I'm going to research on this topic.、Uh, but this story for deciding to do research on the topic uh, is uh, so I, was, I moved to Japan in 2007 and I came here to learn the language. And then, after learning the language, I was also doing、uh, English teaching jobs at various schools and、uh, Like all of us, many of us, not all of us, many of us do. And then in that process, I realized that the knowledge of India among the Japanese students that I'm teaching is number one, really less. And they hardly know anything about India. It's just limited to curries and, you know, very cliches. And also, I thought that English and, is not. And whether you, you travel to work by elephant, I heard that story. Exactly, yes. Oh, did I tell that story? Where did I tell、yeah. that story? <laughs> On the, the Indian Japan.、Uh, okay, yes, yeah. Sorry, they asked me something most interesting experience. Yeah. So, yeah, like somebody asked me if I go, if I travel to work on elephant, and I was very sarcastic about it. And I was like, no, we have parking issues. So, I leave the elephant at home and I travel to work by car. So, yeah, so these were the things like I was coming across. And then also in the time, I felt like I want to teach more than just English, you know? And、uh, I thought like I had, you know, there's more I want to do rather than just、uh, teach English for the rest of my life. And also, it's not my major. So, and then I decided to go back to school and I applied for Sofia University in 2011. And I started my, my master's was actually based on gender studies, and I was doing my research on life of Indian women after marriage. So, in that time, my, one of my,、uh, my professors, Professor Takefumi Terada, he was working on Filipino community in Japan. And he used to talk a lot about the problems and the,、uh, you know, their experiences in Japan as migrants. 
and his work used to fascinate me a lot because i already had this experience of seeing that the 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 knowledge about india among the in the japanese community is very less and also hardly anybody knows that there is indian community in japan and that's when i talked to my mentor then uh, professor cyril wiliet who was uh, who's already been in japan for 50 years now so he encouraged me that yes it will be a wonderful topic because not many people have worked on this topic and uh, people don't talk about the the struggles the indians face while they're stay in japan so and it would also help bridge the two societies so that's how uh the inclination for starting this research began so yeah wonderful and there's so many one sites there and uh, thank you for sharing this photo of you at a japanese festival and i think this comes across in your book too right like what do indian migrants appreciate about japanese culture and what frustrates them about japanese culture with migrant communities there always that push and pull right the positives yeah. and the negatives exactly. and in your book talking about uh, they accept certain things about japanese culture but they retain certain things about their own culture it's mm -hmm. it's just really beautiful and great job thank you so much so kind to me <laughs> so what well, one of the things that really really struck me um was the intersectionality of the woman's experience in japan so the married woman or the mother in japan and this is something i think a lot of international residents women uh experience in japan definitely is having that lack of um a surrounding family extended family to help and you talk about this a lot in your book how uh in india the idea of multi-generational families and grandparents helping with child raising is ingrained and then when they come to japan um they don't have the maids or cleaning help or babysitter help or the extended family and that's a big adjustment in japan right yeah so it's like uh, of course you know like when you are staying with your in-laws it has its own uh, you know struggles you have to come across or face but then it has a lot of advantages you know when you're staying and if you it's easy to plan family Uh, along with your career you know like i have so many friends who are mothers but they also are you know doing really well in their jobs uh in india and they are at very good positions because just because they have a lot of support of either their own parents or their in-laws somebody will look after their kids uh, even though they have to look after their kids too but you know there is a support for them they don't have to worry all the time so they can make an effort towards their jobs as well and on the other side of course india has issues where women are sometimes restricted to work because uh the there is a lot of pressure from the in laws and they will say that you have to uh, quit your job and look after the kids or you know uh, look after your married life and things like that but those things are changing especially in the cities and i am targeting you know that sector of women who are very ambitious so from that perspective when these women they move to japan uh like i say in the book that they are trailing spouse and they are 
their of course their husbands uh, ask them but if they will not say no to their husbands if they are given a brilliant opportunity to move to japan and then there are some who marry uh, the uh, the hus- the the people the men the they they marry the person who is already living in japan not men it's not like they marry many men <laughs> they marry uh, you know like a person who is already living in japan so uh, and then they move to japan I'm actually making a documentary on this aspect right now, uh, which I hope to release sometime in the next year. And in that, when I was doing the video interviews with the women and also during my book interviews, uh, I asked these women, like, what did you know about Japan before you were moving? And they were like, we were so excited with this whole idea of marriage and going abroad that we didn't even check where are we going? What are we what are the options I have, we have when we move there? And these women were actually working before they got married and they had brilliant jobs in India and they were very happy with their, their career side, but marriage had to happen and they were excited about it. And they thought like, we will go to Japan and we'll work here. And then they were like that excitement. A week later, we realized that, oh my God, this is where we are. We hardly see any Indian people here. This is very different from what we hear from our uh, friends who are residing in Canada or UK or US. Like they have like a whole, Indian community where they can go and enjoy and have fun. But here we suddenly feel lonely because our husbands are busy at work. We don't know the language. We've left our jobs. We left our parents. So we don't know what to do. So these are something. And, you know, these are the issues that get overlooked and uh, people expect you to adjust. And then it keeps building up, you know. Like, I remember, like, when I was interviewing these women and they were like, you know, this is the first time we had the opportunity to actually talk about these issues we have had so many years, like almost 15, 20 years in our life. And we didn't have anybody who would actually talk to us and listen to our griefs. Because if we talk to people back home or our friends in India, they feel like you have everything. You have such a wonderful life. You are living abroad. You have a husband. You have good house. Why are you complaining about, you know? But these are the things that they, they then it keeps building up, you know, and they're not able to express their uh, grief because they're expected to fight and find solution, which they do eventually. And these women, they do fight, find their niche and uh, and then settle there. But there is always this sense of emptiness or loneliness that they feel. Which is something there's a a lot of like details which I found very interesting, which I also experienced um, as a foreign mother, foreign wife in Japan. Uh, For example, house parties and the Mm -hmm. difficulty with inviting people to your house when you have such a small house. Like I grew up in Hawaii, we would often have potlucks and people would bring food over and we'd just hang out in the house. And having people over to your house is not very common in Japanese culture. And for me, that was that was a real transition. So trying to make Japanese friends, I think now people are more comfortable with it. But when I first came to Japan, that was a big hurdle. And that's something you talk about in your book. And then on the opposite side, although they don't have the extended family, they don't have a maid to help, which is very common in India. Um, if 
they are away from that support network in Japan, some of the people you talk to, they had a positive about that, that they felt their life was more independent and the husband would help more. And that、mm-hmm. was a positive thing. So that was interesting too. Yeah, that is also there. That is one perspective to look at things because、uh, if they, they see, And also, like, I do see this a lot in the Indian community or the Indian people that I've been interviewing. Of course, it could be there in other communities as well. That most of the people that I talk to,、uh, they don't pose themselves as victims, you know. They look at these situations and challenges as challenges, and then they look to the positive,、uh, you know,、uh, things, to the positive side of the situation. So, similarly, the, these women. Uh, they said, like, okay, we have this issue, but then there is also a positive way to look at it. And that is like, if we were living with our in laws, there will be so much of interference. But here we have like our independent kitchen. We can do whatever we want. The bonding with the husband is stronger because he knows that we are alone. But if they are in India, they are like pampered by their, their mothers, and the mothers would not want their, their sons to work in the house. So, but here things are different. So, there is a family bonding, the couple bonding, and the, the father they make、uh, efforts to take their children to school, drop them to school, or even like newborn babies, they bathe their little babies, which would never happen in India because you will always have a help to look after the kid. So, that bonding thing is there. So, that is the positive side of it. And I think these are the positives that make them. Overcome the negatives of the situation and they're able to survive for so long in a country on their own. Yeah. And another, another thing which I never thought of as integrated with home life is the sudden burden that a lot of wives and mothers had to make the bento for the husbands because of the Indian diet being mostly vegetarian. And the fact that there were so few vegetarian places to eat in Japan, you can't just go and buy the bento as easily if you're vegetarian, right? So, having that added pressure for the wife to also make the bento for not maybe not only the husband, for the kids at school as well, right? Yeah. So,、uh, some parents they try to、uh, they let go of their vegetarian values and then they say, We let the kids eat at school whatever they want,、uh, but we just request the schools not to add beef and pork in their food. But then some parents want their kids to grow up exactly how they were growing up, and then、uh, they, they tell their schools that either you, if you cannot arrange the vegetarian meal, then we will ask, we'll prepare the bento for the kids. And many mothers do that, they prepare lunch for their kids that they can take to school, and for husbands too. Uh, I think also, like on an everyday basis, it's also very expensive to find、uh, vegetarian food unless you can manage with the, the vegetarian onigiris. Some people develop taste for it,、uh, but many are not able to. So then the mothers,、uh, the wives have to prepare bentos for their husbands too. There are、uh, some members of the community, like again, these、uh, amazing Indian women who also do the catering services for these Indian. Uh, families, uh, which is not very expensive. But again, on an everyday basis, I think it would be expensive for people to buy bentos for them as well. So, yeah, but it, it can be challenging. I, I am not 
Indian. My family is not Indian, but we are all vegetarian. And so we always feel very grateful for the Indian migrants in Japan because (laughs) it makes being vegetarian easier. Right. Like when, when we see Indian restaurants, we always feel a bit relieved. You know, now at least we can eat something. And then we became half of our family is vegan. So even vegetarian restaurants, sometimes difficult, but they're Mm. very flexible. So they say, if you just call us before, we'll make you something. Don't worry. You know, so that that is a real support network as well. Plus, let me just say, as someone who's interested in sustainability, I love the Indian style bento boxes, all the stainless steel that's so easy to reuse. Yeah, I love that. I love using that. Yeah, when I go back home, my mom always serves food in these uh, steel plates and stuff, even at home. And I miss that. Uh, Yeah, once I settle and if I have a house of my own, I think I'm going to invest in buying these things because if I keep traveling, it's hard for me to have such a beautiful crockery. Yeah. But that that whole um, the thing about the vegetarian uh, food requirement or as a important part of your lifestyle that many people don't want to give up. And then you mentioned also that some people who were working in high corporate jobs like finance or banking, they would sometimes start an Indian restaurant as entrepreneurs. I thought that was so interesting. Yeah, I think many of them, they do because they also see that they have struggled in the early years in Japan and they want to uh, to try to bring authentic Indian food uh, to serve the Indian community and also to introduce the Indian food to the Japanese community, of course. There are a handful, actually, of Indian restaurants that actually serve the food which is close to the Indian taste. And uh, gradually they are increasing because people are realizing that the Japanese also have the taste bud for the authentic Indian food and they don't need to make it to the Japanese standard or the Japanese standard they thought is something would sell. Because recently South Indian restaurants, they make very, uh, you know, authentic Indian taste and they are doing pretty well in Japan. So yes, these people, they basically start to to support the community and... uh, and they, many of them have done pretty well and have actually been a, a good support for the community. I remember uh, looking for this one particular restaurant in uh, Kamiacho uh, where everybody said the food was really good and they had a buffet. And I went there and I was like really happy that, yay. But now in Edogawa Ku, there, there is another one uh, where the mother of uh, an Indian migrant cooks. So the taste is very, very authentic. So these are a few restaurants that, you know, uh, they, they are doing a great job. So that's yeah. wonderful. And I notice in Japan, there's very few South Indian style places. So uh, if I can find an Indian restaurant that has dosa and uh, South Indian curries, I'm always really happy because I remember traveling around India and that was my favorite kind. Um, So, of course, India is such a massive country. You have so many diverse cultures, so many diverse food cultures as well inside this country. And I think that is something that you mention in your book is everything is kind of mashed together and concised into a very short 
a kind of stereotype of what Indian people are like or what Indian culture is like. And so the more diversity of representations of India in Japan is really healthy to give a more broad view. But at the moment, it is quite a narrow view, as you say, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm sure like even now uh, people still get asked, like when I was there, many of my respondents that I spoke to, the most common question is like, do you eat Indian curry three times a day? And, you know, like how uh, non-Indians would define curry and how Indians would define curry is like absolutely different. I could say, like I also mentioned in the book, that we add spices to every damn thing we eat. But that doesn't mean that we eat curry all the time, you know. We have like typical Indian breakfasts that have no kind of curry. They are like some kind of breads, which have spices in them, of course. But uh, they're not curries. So like there is like, yeah, the kind, the way you convey or the way the media conveys basically, or the way the question is asked, it makes a lot of difference. Like, so, and also like, if you see the, uh, in cities, not just in modern India, even in the, in the old times, because of the British influence, we have, we do eat toast in the morning. We eat cereals in the morning. So yeah, we are, you know, we are, we have been introduced to that culture as well, like any other part of the world. So it shouldn't surprise people that Indians do things like people in other countries do as well. Absolutely. Um, you were also writing some very interesting interviews with Indian residents of Japan uh, for the Japan Times. And this interview I found so interesting uh, with a yoga instructor. And one of the things that she was saying, she hoped uh, Japan would adopt more of authentic style Indian yoga. Yeah, that I it was more, it was less less on uh, mental or emotional health, which is more of a philosophical type of yoga that you would have in India. And it's more just an exercise class. And I thought that was such an important difference. And one of the reasons I often feel a little disappointed with yoga classes in Japan as well. That was interesting. Yeah, I think I saw recently, like at the, from the same school, Trishi Yoga, I also did my yoga teacher training uh, during the pandemic, actually online. And uh, during that course, I also learned a lot. Of course, like I've been practicing yoga for forever, like since I was very young. Uh, but then taking a formal training is a different thing. And then during this interview, we had a very interesting conversation about how and even now, like after I took a teacher training uh, and I started giving online classes to few students. And when I talk about yoga, both in Germany and in Japan or anywhere, uh, sometimes even, uh, you know, like most people think that uh, yoga, you get this image that you have to do all those difficult poses. You have to be flexible. You have to be this, you have to be that. And I'm like, you don't have to be anything. You just have to be there in the moment to practice yoga and uh, using yoga as a means of exercise is good. I am not against that idea, but the real purpose of yoga definitely is uh, to create a connection with yourself, which people fail to understand. And in order to create that connection with self, you don't need that flexibility that again, uh, the whole media hype has been created around yoga. 
you just need to be in the moment and do the poses in the right way which doesn't mean that you will be able to you know touch your feet all the way down it's fine you know even if you're touching it you know near your ankle it is still yoga but it's just that you're breathing right and you are in the moment that is what is most important but yes i do feel not just in japan but also in other parts of the world people do understand like what yoga actually is and they don't fear from doing this uh, beautiful practice because there is so much you can achieve and there is so much uh, i mean having that connect with yourself can be life changing for many people especially in the time that we are living right now where um, there there is so much of stress and the most interesting thing that also uh, keetana also mentioned and i also was talking uh, when i ask my students do you know how to breathe and so when you breathe in does your stomach go out or go in and most of the people are confused they don't even know that what is the right technique of breathing so how can you i mean like you can imagine like how much stress they have in their life and how well they must be uh dealing with it because they don't even know how to breathe properly so that can create more stress you know because you won't be able to uh, deal with that stress properly unless you have that technique of breathing so i think that a lot of awareness about yoga has to be there for the well being and i am not promoting this as an indian or on grounds of spirituality uh, just basic breathing exercise can do wonders to people so absolutely i what have- i did i was so lucky to have a two week yoga uh intensive in dharamsala in india wow. and it was some of the best two week memories of my life but i think we spent the first day just practicing how to breathe exactly. and how to clear your mind like that yes. is so important for yeah. being able to practice yoga at all right exactly and some, I, sometimes i've been in really bad classes not just in japan but in america as well where it's treated like a fitness class yeah. and you're there to relax and they start counting at you while you're in a pose and i'm like i'm out of here that's not yeah, for me you know i feel you i totally feel you i have been to such classes as well but then yeah but i think like most important thing is people should learn how to breathe it's the yes. most important thing before you learn anything else in your life definitely now on <laughs> on the flip side now on another article that you wrote for the Japan Times um is a japanese woman who went to india and really got passionate about learning a type of indian dance and then came back to japan and started teaching that now i love uh meeting japanese people usually women who get so passionate about a foreign culture through dance or art and then bring it back to Japan and end up becoming teachers this happens a lot with hula with mm-hmm. flamenco yeah. and now yeah. to see this with indian dance i was so happy to see this tell me about this this woman a little bit so she i met her in uh, one of the indian community events where it's it's a event that was uh, uh conducted by the uh, kerala community and uh, uh i was told that she's being awarded and i talked to her and then she told me about her life story which is also mentioned in the article that she went to india because she was inspired 
by a book that she was reading, which was about the Asian culture and dances and things like that. And India was one of them that inspired her to go to India at the age of 24. And uh, she learned the culture, uh, she learned dance, and then she wanted to stay in Kerala. Kerala is a beautiful state. Uh, and uh, and then she wanted to stay there, but then she thought like she has to go back to introduce this culture to uh, Japan. And then she came back and it was a, a struggle for her, obviously, you know, because it was new and people don't uh, have interest in doing things that will not uh, give them money eventually. But she was very passionate and she kept doing this. And on the side, she became a translator. She also teaches yoga, I think. And uh, so these were the things that uh, uh, she tried to, you know, teach in Japan uh, despite the struggles. And then it was very interesting. I asked her that, you know, what were the things that she learned or liked about India and what were the things like the Indian people liked or learned from her? And it was very interesting. She said that she learned the value of family uh, and friends, loving family and friends in India, uh, because she said that uh, like her family, relationship changed after her stay in India because she got so much of love from her host family in India that made her feel that, you know, this is something that she can also bring back to her own own house and, uh, you know, improve relationship with her own family members. And at the same time, she said that when she was in India, she struggled a lot with the punctuality issues. And then because she was working with them very closely, so she, you know, like they understood that it is frustrating her. And then they learned that sense of punctuality from her. So it was a beautiful cultural exchange they had. And oh, uh, seems I was like just showing, showing that quote from the article. I love that yeah. same part uh, where she's talking about she learned that deep love of family and the close relationships of family. And then uh, her Indian friends were telling her they appreciated Japan's efficiency of, of timeliness and punctuality. And that, that comes up in your book a lot as well. Yes, what yes, the Indians yes. appreciate about Japan is often the efficient use of time. You yeah. have a, a wonderful quote in your book. Uh, if it's an Indian project, it might take one month to plan and six months to do. But if it's a Japanese project, it takes six months to plan and one month to do or something like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think based on that, I remember like uh, there was this whole con conversation about Japan being delayed in vaccination. And I was like uh, telling my friend, like, but you know what? When they actually start the rollout, they will be ahead of everybody. <laughs> and it's quite close to that, you know, like they are number three, I think, right now in the G7 countries in the, the vaccination rollout. So. It's kind of true. That is, it is true, isn't it? And that is something that comes up again and again with the different people that you talk with, uh, talking about uh, Indian Indian people are, are very clever, but they can learn about efficiency from Japanese people and Japanese culture. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I think because Indian culture is like more relaxed and uh, there are some some parts of the country like some states where it is like uh, you know people are very efficient of course uh, but in general like it's more relaxed and people don't value 
time as much because it's relaxed. So it doesn't come to them that uh, being on time can make a huge difference. So yeah, it would be nice. Like I also struggle now when I go back to India, like when people don't uh, make it on time and I feel like, you know, we could have saved so much time and have quality time and I could meet more people if everybody values time. But, but yeah, but on the other side, I was telling like, um, somebody the other day because I was in India for two weeks uh, like a week ago and a friend of mine was uh, visiting India after a long time and then they had like back-to-back plans and I did that when I first visited India uh, after two years of my stay in Japan having back-to-back plans in Japan is like super easy like because you know everything is on time everybody will be on time and your plans will go as per you know you have designed it but in India, uh, back-to-back plans never happen. And it's like, in India, it's like, if you don't slow down, the country will slow you down. <laughs> so you have to work in a certain manner to fit in that culture. But regardless of that, it would be brilliant if people do value time, yes. I do, I can relate to that because I grew up in Hawaii. I went to university in California. Those two places are very famous for being laid back and relaxed. And that happens with time too. And now after many years living in Japan, if I go home, I expect people to be there on time, you know, and people just aren't used to that. So it's definitely a shift. Yeah. (laughs) But then it's like, it teaches you a lot. So like when I go back to India now, I go in a mode that I have to relax. People get late. It's okay. Don't worry. Let things happen at their own pace. <laughs> That's right. Just try not to plan too much. I, yeah. I learned as well. Right? Exactly. Yes. When you're outside Japan, just take life as it comes. <laughs> yeah. It's much, much easier. Yeah. Um, you talk a, a lot about like the history, the long history between yeah. India and Japan. Um, but you say these two nations do not have any history of serious conflict. And yet at the same time, their relationship has never risen above the level of lukewarm. Um, Do you still feel this way since you wrote that in the book? It is getting better, of course, but I do feel like uh, it hasn't reached its full potential. And, uh, but let's hope maybe eventually it will keep getting better. But I do think like there is a lot more better understanding the need of each other to be able to enjoy working with each other because in many ways they are like poles apart the two cultures so uh, but yeah they are getting better but still there is still one, a lot to go yeah definitely one positive uh story that i i hadn't really i think i'd heard of yagi-san but i hadn't realized um so a uh, indian migrant who went into politics became yes. naturalized japanese went into politics And it sounded like the reason he went into politics was because of a plan to make a little India in the area he was living. And he disagreed. And a lot of uh, Indian migrants living in the area also disagreed with the plans going ahead. And he realized unless he or other Indian migrants got involved in politics, it was going to be very hard to change things for the better. It's a really interesting story. Yeah, it's not like he went only because of that reason. I think his idea was to uh, 
to support the whole foreign community, not just the Indian community. But the spark came from that one event where uh, they wanted to uh, to create a little Indian, uh, you know, little India, like have an Indian hospital and things like that. And he felt that there was no need to have these little things only for the Indian people. But on a larger scale, we should look into the foreign community, foreign society, and how uh, we can build system in the Japanese society to support the foreign community, not just the Indian community. So I think that was the reason in order to support the foreign community at a larger scale, he decided that there has to be a foreigner in politics in order to make a difference. Because otherwise things just can't, you know, uh, happen. Yeah. So yes. And that, that idea of integration, integration yes. and just making it better for everyone using the same facility exactly. than segregation, right? And it's so important. Yes, very true. Yeah, and I think yeah, it, it does make sense. Like uh, there, there was no need, like for any country, we don't need any uh, certain country's hospital in a certain area. We just need that if even if the Japanese uh, doctors can speak English uh, to a certain level in order to, to develop a connect with the foreign community, I think that is more than enough. And that is the uh, effort we need to put in the society rather than putting money and creating something for one particular community. We need to create something for the whole foreign community so that it becomes especially that's so true especially now with the shrinking population um it it really doesn't make sense to to have separate facilities like that because we yeah. don't have enough workers so we need to exactly. you know get the workers working for everybody in a yeah. few places not spread or them if, out yeah or if anything i think it would be nice like if japan also uh, started uh taking foreign doctors in their facilities, you know, like uh, to... And foreign um, nurses. Exactly, yeah. And not giving... Language is important. I wouldn't deny that. And I do think people who work in these facilities do need to learn the language. But that doesn't mean they need to be native level. I think there can be some adjustments made that uh, they take the English part and with the little knowledge of the the Japanese language, but then they are there to serve both the communities in a way. And I think basic English is something which everybody speaks, you know, it's just that there is a level of hesitance, but basic English can be spoken by most people, even in Japan. Let's talk about language a little bit, because that comes up a few times in your book on both sides uh, for the English ability, but also for the Japanese ability of the indian migrants uh yagi san yogi san sorry yogi was one of the <laughs> one of the examples unfortunately his son um had some it seems like had some bias from the teachers uh in his schools he was in public japanese school and yeah. uh the teachers were not very supportive of his less than perfect japanese and he ended up having to send his son to England yeah. uh, to be educated and give up on the public education system in Japan. In our situation, I'm so happy to say we have had migrant families that we've known who have had so much wonderful support in the public school system. So it, it really is unlucky that this happened and hopefully it is getting better. 
I would hope. Yeah. Also, I think it also plays a role because you're in Hiroshima or if you're in a small town. Uh, I do have Indian people who live outside uh, Tokyo in Tochigi area or Ibaraki area who do say that their their kids have brilliant experience and the teachers go out of the way to help them. And uh, but then uh, also in his case, you know, because uh, it, there are some actually Indian uh, parents who send their kids to the Japanese school from the very beginning, like the uh, first grade or kindergarten, Yochien. And then uh, some have good experience, sorry, and some do not have good experience like Yogi-san. So it really depends on the school, uh, which area that school is, what kind of teachers are there. But definitely things are getting better. And uh, even the Indian parents who have financial issues or who are very sure that they are going to spend rest of their life in Japan, they don't hesitate to send their kids to the Japanese school. But it's a minority, like very less people do that at this moment. But hopefully things will increase uh, when we hear more good stories about people going to Japanese school and having good experiences, then it will inspire the others to do that too. But yeah, uh, but some parents do have not just Yogi-san, there are some other parents too who have had like a terrible experience, yeah. bullying, or even the kids, they had issues because they felt like their personalities were being suppressed and they were made to behave in a certain way, uh, which they were not able to at a very young age. And the kids were not talking much when they came back home because they felt like uh, suppressed. And the parents got worried and then they changed the schools to international school. But then I also had one parent who sent her kid to a Japanese school from the very beginning. Now he, he graduated from the Japanese school and now then he went to UK for three years of uh, graduation, undergrad, four years of undergrad. And now he's back and he's working in Japan. So he has like Hindi language skill, brilliant Japanese. He supports his family a lot because he's got like really good Japanese language skills. And because he stayed in UK for, you know, like three to four years, his English skills are also better. So it's a good combination. So That's wonderful to hear. Um, it's a good time to mention that there is a wonderful international school which has been run by Indian migrants and caters mostly to Indian uh, families, but is a real support network, I think, especially in Tokyo, um, because it represents a lot more of Indian culture within Japan. Um, there's a lot more acceptance of the Indian curriculum, uh, maybe more IT, more science, persuasion than maybe a typical Japanese school might be. Um, my sister actually sent her children to the Indian school in Tokyo, and they were not of Indian heritage, but they had a wonderful experience at that school and a little bit more cost effective than a typical international school, perhaps. So there's so many wonderful effects how the international school can also help spread awareness of Indian culture in Japan, I think. Yeah, that's there. I mean, Indian school also has its own challenges, like Yogi-san also mentions, like, but that was also in the beginning. And now there are a few other Indian schools who are trying to give the best possible quality, not just to the, uh, the students that are from India, but also to the foreign students. So they're also trying their best to, you know, do whatever best they can to have a curriculum that fits uh, everybody so 
and it's good to hear that your sister had a good experience. And then here, uh, Indian festivals is something you mentioned a few times in your book about something that's really hard for Indian migrants to be away from all of yeah. the important festivals. It would be like Americans being away from Thanksgiving and Christmas is often really hard, right? Yeah. Um, so it's nice that international schools can kind of be a hub of the festival atmosphere, as well as uh, you talk about in your in your book about religion and finding different churches or temples where people can practice their religions. Is that right? Yeah. So yes, I think like Diwali is around the corner, 4th of November. So people this time they will be having online events uh, and uh, it's brilliant. Like there is a new group, uh, All Japan uh, Association of India. So they are doing like very nice online events and people from different communities of Indian India are going to do like online events and even Japanese are participating. So the Indians, they make a lot of effort to organize these events because it means a lot to them. And uh, even for me, myself, like, you know, I... I'm organizing a little party for myself on Diwali because uh, I think yeah, Diwali is like New Year for us and we all love this festival a lot. And this is something we miss when we move abroad because not every time we can go back. I have actually not celebrated Diwali for 15 years in India, but many people take the opportunity to go back home and celebrate and come back. And uh, so, yeah, they make a lot of effort for Diwali. And there is another festival of colors, Holi. I don't know if you know about it because you've been to India. So there is a possibility. Yeah, that you know. I, I love Holi. It's such yeah, a, it's really... a colorful festival. Yeah, do yeah. They, is there anyone that celebrates it in Japan? Oh, yes, yes. They do that in India, in Japan as well. In Tokyo, they have like a, in Edogawaku, they have a park where they organize it every year. And uh, uh, so obviously it doesn't happen like it would happen in India, but they try to make it as fun as it is uh, possible for the community members and also for the Japanese members or the foreigners, whoever wants to visit, they're welcome to come and join, eat the food, see the dance and everything. And this time it's online, so anybody can watch it. And um, uh, sorry, what was the other thing you were talking about? Uh, just talking about if it's religion, right? Like freedom, freedom of expression in Japan to celebrate your festivals, but also to practice your own religion. I think we touched on this a little bit in the yeah. education and the bullying or the lack of understanding, yeah. not only about diet, but you also mentioned about certain religions. Uh, it's common for the boys to grow their hair long. Yeah. And they were getting pressure from the school, the Japanese schools, to cut their hair or to mm. not wear the turban. So there, there is that pressure in Japan to conform, to be the same. Exactly. And sometimes the argument is if everybody conforms, then there's less bullying. But mm. if it's something that's important to your culture, you don't want to give it up, right? Exactly. So, okay, so like, yeah, that side is there. So let me begin from here that uh, one of the most beautiful things that I observed during my research was religion does not play a very important role in the Japanese society, right? And uh, and the Indian people learn a lot from this, like how it does not play a big role. And they try to create a balance among their beliefs too. And But at the same time, 
I see a lot of support from the Japanese community for these uh, Indian people in organizing their festivals or even at the religious places, which is the Indian temple or the Sikh temple or the Jain temple. You see a lot of Japanese people coming, taking part or being a part of these groups and organizing events and everything. So it's a very beautiful thing that even though religion does not play an important role, but it plays a role in connecting the two communities with each other. But on the other hand, like you mentioned, and also for the Sikh community and for a few other communities as well, like uh, uh, it is difficult for them because they cannot uh, practice it like they would practice it in India, just because there has to be, uh, you know, like they can't behave in a certain manner in public outside their community because they'll be questioned or they will be uh, looked at like they are someone different, you know, so they fear that feeling of being different, whether it is in school, whether it is at workplace. So they avoid doing things that would make them stand out. Also, like you mentioned about the hair for the Sikh people, they get it cut. Yes, some some students have to do that. But then there are others who try to to help their kids fight that situation and not cut their hair. And, but it can be difficult, you know, it really depends on kid to kid, how strong is their mental health and then to what extent they can deal with that pressure and the challenge of accepting who they are in an environment that is forcing them not to be what they are, you know. So it really differs from person to person. And also it was very interesting in one of my interviews, like a woman told me, like, you know, we have this thing, Bindi. And um, we don't we we don't uh, wear bindi. Many many women don't wear bindi in everyday life these days. But we when we have some kind of uh, religious prayers at home, uh, we we apply uh, kumkum, which is like a red red powder. We apply here, and it has a significance for prayers. And if they have if they do the prayers before they go to work, because sometimes the, the things fall on a working day and it is not a day off in Japan. So they have to remove it because some women tell me that if by mistake they go with it on or if they put their uh, sindhur on their forehead because they are married, they often ask, they are often questioned on train or at school like, oh ma'am, there is blood on your forehead or hello, excuse me, there is a blood on your forehead. So and they're like, it's sometimes so embarrassing that it's better not to put it on and leave the house because then you, can, you can't stop. I mean, it's like endless questioning on the way to work or somewhere. So that is so interesting. I never thought of that. But yeah, definitely. I can imagine that happening. I think there's there's especially for younger women, they're so interested in Indian fashion. They love the sari. They love the the beauty. I sometimes see Japanese young women also wearing it, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, doing the hand, the henna hand tattoo. Yeah, yes, Anyone yes. who has traveled to India, I think, would would appreciate and understand that. Um, but also getting back to the diversity and accepting differences of the longer hair, I would hope as the schools are now becoming more inclusive of the same uniform for boys and girls, uh, different lengths hair for boys and girls being allowed, that that might help uh, Indian migrants, but also everybody, anyone who doesn't identify as strictly a boy or a girl would feel more comfortable as well, right? So um, hopefully things are, are becoming a little bit more inclusive and accepting 
as we move forward. But yeah, it takes a long time in Japan, right? Yeah, everything takes long, like takes six months, but one month. <laughs> yeah, I love that story. Um, so we have a little bit less than 10 minutes. Um, I love so many parts of your book. I found it so insightful, so interesting for uh, things that the Indian migrants might be thinking about, which is very different from things that I thought about, uh, especially during pregnancy. This is something that I really reacted to when I read it. Um, you interviewed some women about having their babies in Japan. And I thought this was so interesting. I really appreciated having a baby in Japan. Your care is unbelievable. The level of care is so high. And you talk about this in the book. But the one thing I would completely disagree with is being told how much weight you're gaining all the time yeah, was so hard. Yeah. And some of the Indian women you talked to said they appreciated that. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, I couldn't. <laughs> Yeah, like they, they did complain about it, but then they were like, you know what, in a way it is good because we will keep a watch, we have the pressure and we will keep a watch. Also because I think Indian bodies, usually uh, we tend to put on weight very easily. And uh, so maybe that is the reason why they feel like having someone, you were like that too, okay. So yeah, yeah, it's it probably, I would also not appreciate it, but because this book is about the people I speak to, so I had to, you know, I emphasize on what they, they want to speak. Uh, no, yeah, absolutely. But, I just thought yeah. it was so interesting. Yeah, it and, was interesting. Uh, I think especially for pregnant women, because we are so hormonal and yeah. emotional that every time they told me I gained too much weight, it was it was tears every time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm afraid somebody might be like, don't you dare tell me what to eat, what not to eat. <laughs> But that whole thing, going back again to the lack of extended family here or the lack of having a nanny or a babysitter, which you're used to, that's really yeah. difficult. I think even now in Japan, it um, it's just you don't yeah. have that network of support yeah. as much, especially yeah. for mothers who maybe want to keep some of their life or go back to work. It's very difficult, right? Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, that was the reason, like, uh, uh, I really wanted to give a lot of emphasis to these women that I spoke to because their stories really touched me. And they touched me. Maybe their problems are regular. Every woman has to go through that problem abroad. And then for that, every woman, I feel like how much, you know, pain you would have gone through and the pain that was not recognized in general, because you were expected to, to adapt to it because you are a woman, you are becoming a mother. So that is so much of pressure that comes and we don't realize that. And also you're dealing with so much of hormonal changes in that time. And there's so much of happening, but there is so less support and there's, there are so few people who can actually understand like what a huge mountain you're under, you know, like it's like, yeah. So it gives me a lot of it. Sometimes even when I talk now, it gives me goosebumps that what they must have gone through, what you must have gone through, what women in general go through when they're having kids without the support of their parents in a foreign country. It is not easy. It is really not easy. That's so true. But I, I think it's for every every mother who goes through it, 
and gives advice to others how to do it better you know and every every indian migrant like you who's writing a book about all these great stories and the way to move forward better it helps it helps build more inclusive supportive communities so i appreciate all the work you've done amazing thank you so much it means a lot i'm glad that it would be of help to people that was the motive to write the book that was the thing i decided that i want this to go out and for people to read and i'm glad the prices are down i hope it goes down further <laughs> it's it's not so bad. it's very worth it it's full of wonderful inspiring stories um if you could choose one takeaway that you would hope to see in japan to make it a bit easier for migrant communities especially indian migrants in tokyo um was there one thing that you could choose you talked a little bit about um acceptance so for example uh you talk about some indian people not being treated like they speak native english even though they've spoken english all their life or uh, women not being accepted into different jobs like finance even though they are trained in finance i think you mentioned about medical staff as well accepting more people from abroad who can do the job well but maybe not through the japanese certification i think that would really be a game changer right Yeah. I think if I have to say is my it says my network is unstable. Can you hear me? I yep, you're yeah. fine. Okay. So yeah, I think my biggest uh, uh request to Japan would be that I think not just at this moment like for this particular message not just for Indians but for foreigners overall that I think they have to realize or any any country like that has migrants coming to their country they have to realize that you know migration today is a two way road you know and they have to realize that they need migrants as much as the migrants need the country and like if they are not happy they can move somewhere else they can find other opportunities but it's it's good for both both the parties the host and the migrants if they understand and respect each other's need and try to adapt for each other and meet the halfway but in terms for the indians i think my expectation from japan definitely is that you need to accept uh, people based on their education background when it comes to job you don't have to tag indians just as non natives without even knowing their educational background you know because there are so many natives who do not use their grammar right but still they are considered natives but then there will you will find indian people who have english as their major and their english is brilliant so you need to at least give them a chance to interview them without by just saying them no looking at the resume or their nationality you know like give them a chance and let them come for the interview and if you don't like it it's a different thing but don't reject them on the grounds of their nationality straight away i mean just treat their qualifications as a medium to choose them for the job or not for the job you know so yeah these Absolutely. are the things that i think yeah it's such a a, a golden rule I think even my grandmother knew don't judge a book by its cover right yes. like you have to give people the benefit of the doubt and exactly. talk to them and get to know them and look at them case by case 
before you decide. You can't decide all one nationality is not going to be suitable for anything, right? Yeah, In this exactly. day and age. Yeah, and also I think a workplace that has different people from different nationality would have more to offer than people from just one, you know, nationality or one yeah. continent, you know. So it would Definitely. be it would be nice if people, yeah, look into that. And, but, yeah. and Japan, this is a risk for Japan if we don't become more accepting in Japan, because like you mentioned, some of the stories, uh, women especially who did not feel included because of gender inequality or because of race inequality, and they had trouble communicating in English, their Japanese was not good enough, and then they moved to Hong Kong. And they were in a much more multinational situation. Yes. They yes. felt they had more gender equity as mm -hmm. well as being able to communicate in English, which was the common language. So I think yeah. these are warning signs for Japan, the Japan to compete and get migrant labor, which it needs so badly. It has to change, really. Yeah, but I wonder if they do want to change. I hope they they would want to change and they will change. Yeah, it would benefit everyone. <laughs> I think so. And I, I think that's, that's true for sustainability in many ways, right? Yeah. Having more inclusive, diverse uh, uh, staff in your company uh, is a big change, but also changing to use less plastic is a big change exactly. changing exactly. to use renewable energy is a big change so exactly. these are all connected parts of sustainability that we have to move forward on oh, right yes. yeah <laughs> for the good of all you know not just for Definitely. one people it's for it would benefit everybody and in yeah, the end and, we're just like one family you know yeah and really there is benefit for people planet and profit exactly. you know you're gonna make more profits as well if you're more Definitely. diverse and inclusive right if you have more foreigners more taxes taxpayers <laughs> <laughs> i mean another good point yeah well thank you yeah. so much that's our hour thank you so much for all your insights and for joining the interview today that was Thanks. wonderful talking with you yes i had really nice time talking to you as well and thank you so much for having me it was wonderful i look forward to your next book which will be about indian migrants in germany and how it compares to indian migrants in japan that'll be okay. a really interesting book look forward oh, to nice. that pressure <laughs> no pressure maybe a few articles first Yes. Um, but this was 10 years of research, right? Plus your yes. time living in Japan. In Japan. Um, I would really encourage anyone to go and pick this up. Indian Migrants in Tokyo. It's available on Amazon and any good bookseller. So thank you so much, Mega. Thank you so much. See you. Thanks, thank everyone. You. Have a good day. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for joining. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.